0: What, ladies, that which doth enrich the hand of yonder knight?
1: Next chapter podcast presents the play on podcast series Romeo and Juliet.
0: She doth teach the torches to burn bright
1: With original songs and music in a made-for-the-sound-stage podcast.
0: From Cupid's quiver, courage I'll
2: Have not
1: saints lips and holy palmers too. Translated into modern English verse by Hansel Jung.
2: I, Pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer.
1: Hear Shakespeare's tragedy about two star-crossed lovers as you've never imagined it before.
2: You kissed by the book.
1: Adapted from the acclaimed Natco and Two River Theatre production. Can I
0: move forward when all my heart is here?
1: Go to playonpodcast.com to learn more. And remember, violent delights have violent ends.
3: My name is Donald Peoples. I'm the adult librarian at East Flatbush slash Saratoga Libraries. Many of the patrons are from shelters, And some of them are already outside waiting, either in front of the building or across the street. I'm waiting to come in, and I greet everyone as they come in.
4: Donald Peebles works at Brooklyn Public Library, first in East Flatbush and now in Bed-Stuy. Donald is in a unique position because he's not only familiar with the needs of patrons experiencing homelessness from the library's perspective, but he also knows firsthand what it's like to live in New York City without a place to call home.
3: I became homeless um, two weeks before graduating from Pratt with my second master's. It's an accomplishment and I'm very proud of that. Yeah, the homeless part is kinda like how did I how did I get here? I was staying with a friend um in her living room for a year, it was originally three months, but it ended up being a year and I know at that time it was time for me to go. Um I wore out my welcome.
5: While Donald was living in shelters, he continued looking for a job as a librarian. And during the day when the shelters closed, Donald spent a good amount of time using the public library as a patron. He read books, used the computers, he even started
4: volunteering at a public library. Meanwhile, living in a shelter at night was stressful for Donald.
3: Um, The shelter experience was like being in the military. The correction officers, um, the caseworkers, the staff are just talking down to people, yelling at everyone, putting everyone into a box, not taking into consideration everyone's individual reasons of becoming homeless in the first place.
4: Every evening when Donald went back to the shelter, the officers would ask him to put his belongings in a bin in order to deal with what he felt was a dehumanizing environment— Donald would make a point to put his library books in the bin with his other belongings to show that he was an educated person.
3: I had to let the correctional officers know that they weren't going to talk me in the old kind of a way. I'm letting them know that I am literate, I can comprehend, and I will write a letter in a second.
4: Books were Donald's defense mechanism and his refuge. And after a few months, his dogged job searching paid off.
3: After getting out of the shelter and um, living in the Link program, Transitional Housing in East New York, and I was hired by BPL, I always wanted to do something to give back to something relating to homelessness.
5: As a librarian in East Flatbush, in order to better serve patrons living in shelters or unstable housing, Donald created a program for them to find out about social services and, above all, to help them build self-confidence in a system that tends to run you down. He called his program Shine On Me.
3: I got the title from the theme song from the sitcom Amen. It was sung by gospel singer Vanessa Bell Armstrong.
6: Shine
3: on me. I wanted to make a difference. Um, from other programs, many programs dealing with homeless people is oh, just do a job search, um, learn how to dress, get your job, and then that's it. Like so that you get the job, we don't have to see you. Uh, but I wanted to put the self-esteem element into it, and which made it different because homeless people are dehumanized even by, I think, agencies and institutions that mean well.
7: It was kind of just like I just happened to walk in, and I seen these group of people sitting there, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, like I didn't mean to interject. And they were like, no, 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 come in, come in. And I'm like, okay.
4: This is Sakina, a regular patron at Brooklyn Public Library. She was one of the attendees for Shine On Me, and she remembers feeling welcomed from the very beginning of Donald's program.
5: Sakina was at the time living without stable housing. She has a son who had just finished elementary school, and unfortunately, the stress of homelessness was something Sakina had experienced for a while. When her son was one, Sakina lost her job and then her apartment. She's had to move around, working part-time jobs and temp jobs. Through it all, the library was a constant for Sakina and her son.
7: A lot of these kids are at home. They're stressed out. Um, They don't have enough food. In the house, they have to share a room with four, five, six other kids. They come to the library. The library gives lunch, summer lunch. Sometimes they give snacks for their programs. Um, They'll call the kids' parents for them. Listen, I just want to let you know they're here. They made it here safe. Um, The program is over now. We're going to send them back home. They don't have to do that, though. That's not a part of their job. You know, now it's like the library is concerned about your well-being. They want to make sure that you're okay. This is real facts. This is real true stories. Like, I've gone through it, and I've seen it happen to other people.
5: I'm Krissa corbett Kavoris And I'm Adjwa Duse. You're listening to Borrowed, stories that start at the library. Today, we're getting home.
4: One of the unfortunate realities in New York City today is that there aren't many places to be if you're experiencing homelessness. And it's not an uncommon experience to be without a home in the city. According to a recent report, there are nearly 60,000 people living in the shelter system in New York City, over half of whom are families with children. And this is an issue that's close to home for us. As of July 2018, the neighborhood with the highest rates of families entering shelters is East New York in Brooklyn. The library is a public
5: space, open most days of the week for most working hours. It's a valuable resource for the many people
7: without stable housing, something Sakina pointed out. For anyone that has to live somewhere where you know you don't have peace, you know, whether it's on your mother's couch... Or, you know, your grandmother's attic or whatever the situation is. I know if I get out of this house and go to this library, nobody wants anything from me.
4: I'm going to come here, enjoy my magazine, enjoy my book. It's true. Anyone can come into the library and spend time here. We are not going to bother you. But there are times when library staff do take a more active role.
0: There's nothing wrong with asking someone if they need help. That's actually the main question that we ask as staff all day when people walk through the door.
5: This is Matthew Irizarry.
0: 22-year employee at Brooklyn Public Library. I've worked at many branches, probably all of them.
5: Matthew interacts with people all day in his role as a library circulation supervisor. A few years ago, he began to notice one particular patron who was in the library almost every
0: day. And many of our patrons would complain about the unpleasant smell coming from this gentleman. And instead of us uh, telling him to leave, We said, you know what, let's see if there are other alternatives um, so we can help this guy out.
4: Because libraries are public spaces, it means everyone is welcome to come in. That mix of people makes us dynamic and democratic places, but it can also create tension. So in this particular situation, Matthew decided to have a conversation with the patron.
0: It's always good to talk to people to see exactly what their needs are, because they could actually be living somewhere and they just have issues in their home. So do you need help with anything could be the first question you could ask the person. And his response was, no, I don't.
5: Though the patron was initially hesitant, he and Matthew developed a relationship. Over a series of conversations, Matthew was able to discover that this patron was indeed living on the street. He had been put on disability from his construction job and hadn't had a place to call home for more than a decade.
4: So Matthew reached out to Breaking Ground, an organization that partners with the library to provide social services to people experiencing homelessness.
0: So I called Breaking Ground and they got the assistant, uh, Marisol, to come down. And she came down, she sat down with him, and at first there was some resentment. And I explained to him, you know, please Try not to scream at her like that. Just talk regular and she's going to help you.
4: Breaking Ground staff continued to meet with the patron at the library to try and advance his case. A few months later, Matthew was walking in his own neighborhood.
0: And one day I just happened to bump into him on the street next to where I live. And I see him and he's like, hey man, I finally got my place. Thank you very much. I was like, wow, I can't believe this. And I was just so happy to hear that because he's been coming to our library for 30 years. He's been there, he's seen many renovations, he's seen all of the staff come and go, and he said nobody ever talked to him.
5: Sometimes all it takes is a conversation to get someone headed toward home. Matthew's story
4: is amazing, and it really shows the importance of having a safe and comfortable place for people to interact. But Adjua, in this episode, we're going to dig into the ways in which the library could be better when it comes to welcoming and helping patrons who are experiencing homelessness.
2: That
5: is absolutely right. It's something that librarian Donald Peebles brought up, the fact that some public library systems have policies that seem to go against the idea that everyone actually belongs.
3: There's still policies um, letting people know um, you really cannot come in, even though the doors say everyone is welcome. But it seems like when it comes to homelessness, it kind of stops right there. Because I know another system, they have signs: you cannot bring in bags, yeah, you cannot bring in shopping carts.
4: Brooklyn Public Library doesn't have those signs up, but it does have a policy on public behavior in the library that's posted on our website. One section outlines a series of quote inappropriate behaviors. These include sleeping on BPL premises, the use of BPL restrooms for bathing, shaving, washing hair, or changing clothes, and quote disturbing others because of offensive body odor. These are policies that, in many ways, end up targeting people experiencing poverty or homelessness. I would like to see that language change. That last voice
5: is Eva Razon. She's the Director of Outreach Services at the Brooklyn Public Library. We talked to her about the library's policies and the broader question that we keep returning to on Borrowed, how to make sure everyone feels welcome in the library, and at the same time maintain a level of safety and comfort for the patrons and for the staff. I think it's definitely easier, or it seems easier at the outset, to have a very clear rule that can be enforced uniformly. But the reality of what happens in the branches and the relationships that people have with patrons um, and how power plays out in
4: interactions with patrons is very different from clear enforcement. Public librarians interact on a daily basis with people experiencing a whole range of struggles. And there can be an impulse to look for guidelines or a secret key that tells you how to handle every kind of interaction.
5: But instead of looking for one-size-fits-all policies, Eva says it's important to understand that every person's situation is unique. So I think librarians and library staff treat the public with empathy and with something I heard someone recently in an evaluation say, uh, radical hospitality. (laughs) So I think that we need to be very clear and really promote what we can do because um, often folks might not even know that they that they can ask a librarian anything from you know about dinosaurs to housing assistance ask us anything from dinosaurs to housing assistance
4: it's what we're good at and in fact it's something librarians have been good at for a really long time With all of the news stories about public libraries being the safety net for shrinking social services, it's easy to forget that the overlap between social work and librarianship goes back a long time, actually all the way back to the 1870s and 80s, when public libraries were starting to be built across the country.
5: That's true. Those early libraries made a point to offer concerts and lectures, as well as access to bathrooms and kitchens, and programs for kids and families, a lot of the same things we still do today. So, I think it's fair to say that offering social services at public libraries has been a thing for over a hundred years. What's new about all of this is public libraries have started to make the relationship more official
2: I'll be honest with you, I was confused. even as a social worker, I have not
4: heard of library social worker before. Leah Esqueda is officially the first social worker in the country to be employed at a public library. She was hired by San Francisco Public Library back in 2009, and when she started her job, there really wasn't a blueprint for it. Um, They told me that my clients are the
2: library patrons, anyone who walk in through the library, you know, pretty much entire San Francisco, and then the staff as well. It was an enormous task,
5: especially because it's in a city with a notorious housing crisis. A recent report found San Francisco to be the city with the third largest population of people experiencing homelessness in the country. But unlike New York, which houses 95 percent of people without a home, San Francisco provides shelter for only about 33 percent of its homeless population.
4: So where does the library fit into all of this? That's where Leah comes in.
2: So within my first year here, I actually met with every department and also, um, you know, providing direct service work to the patron. They are the experts on their own lives, and, you know, they're the experts on homelessness, so I had to learn a lot from them. Leah enlisted a team of part-time peer mentors
5: called Health and Safety Associates, or HASAs. These were people with personal experiences of homelessness employed by the library to connect patrons to social services. In other words, Leah called in the experts.
6: Well, my name is Charles Charles Houston. And I currently work for the San Francisco City and County Department of Public Health. I was homeless for a while. You know, um, had issues, drugs and alcohol and things like that. So I worked from a house to an apartment, to a studio, to a room, to to the street. When I got tired of the street, which was several years, I went and sought some help. You know, can't do it alone.
4: Charles got his living situation back on track, and after a while, he started volunteering at the library, which turned into a job as a HASA under Leah's mentorship. As a HASA, Charles made the rounds in the library and approached people who looked like they might need help.
6: You know, we'd go around and see somebody sleeping and offer them some food, offer them some support for the social services there. And if they agreed, then I'd call Leah. She'd come down and do an interview.
4: Leah would then be able to tell if the patron qualified for different kinds of services or even housing. And not only was the library a perfect place to connect people to
5: social services, it turned out that the library was also an ideal training ground for future health workers and social workers. Leah mentored the Hassas, and many of them expressed a desire to continue on in the field.
6: She influenced me to go for a contracting position with the Department of Health it don't have to do the library.
5: It all happened through the library, says Charles. In the ten years since San Francisco Public Library first hired a social worker, Leah's team has been able to house about 200 people. And Leah says it makes a difference for staff to see people who were once homeless now back at the library helping other patrons find housing.
4: Adjoa, I think it's just amazing to hear Charles' story. And Leah really is a leading voice in library social work. I know when they hired that position, all of us were paying attention. She told us that a big part of her day is spent on the phone talking to other public library systems around the country about how they can also integrate social workers into their systems.
5: And like we said earlier, it's really catching on. There are now about 35 public libraries in the country that have a full-time social worker on staff. And it's becoming more common for public library systems to hire social work interns.
4: Sarah Johnson, an academic librarian at Hunter College in Manhattan and a licensed social worker, told us that there are currently about 50 social work students across the country doing their placements in public libraries. And here at BPL, we've just started our first round of social work interns doing their placements in our branches.
5: And in the meantime, the library will still be here. As a refuge, a home away from home, or whatever else you need it to be. Take it from Donald, the Brooklyn librarian you heard at the beginning of the episode.
3: I look at librarianship, I think for me, as in a social work capacity. I think that's where libraries are going. I've always predicted that. Libraries, when you're going through things, the library's always there.
5: Now, it wouldn't be a barred episode without a book match segment. Here to recommend a few books to you all is Brooklyn Public Library's chief librarian, Nick Higgins. Hi, Nick. Hey, Edwin. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. Uh, we're so glad to have you here. Um, we spent the last episode talking about libraries as a home away from home and the important social services that patrons can find here. You put together a list of books on that very topic. Um, so, what's the first one you have for us?
1: Um, I decided to choose a couple of books that just reminded me of home and sort of like what it what it means to to sort of like try to find your place and find your home. So my first one is Jazz by Toni Morrison. Um, it was a, something that kind of oriented me to the energy to the city is totally written in jazz. And there's like this one passage in jazz. And this is a city, I think, kind of um, creating the myth of what uh, the city is to a lot of people who are sort of migrating to the city. He forgets a sun that used to slide up like the yolk of a good country egg, thick and red-orange at the bottom of the sky – And he doesn't miss it, doesn't look up to see what happened to it or to the stars made irrelevant by the light of thrilling, wasteful street lamps. That kind of fascination, permanent and out of control, seizes children, young girls, men of every description, mothers, brides, and barfly women. And if they have their way and get to the city, they feel more like themselves, more like the people they always believed they were. Um, So that's that's sort of why I think uh, jazz is so important here as a novel of the city of New York and sort of a meditation on what it is to find a home here.
5: That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Tony does uh, have that effect on people. Um, so, what is the second book that you have for us?
1: Uh, the second book is Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Um, this is a story, um, it's sort of written in letters, by this elderly uh, minister in uh, Gilead, Iowa, uh, who's writing um, a, a lot of letters to his seven year old son. He sort of has this moment where he realizes that uh, life is entirely too precious. It's um, going by too quickly. It's a different kind of novel. I hadn't read something like that um, up to that point in my life where it was slow. It sort of forces you to sort of pay attention and um, kind of look around a little bit.
5: Sounds very powerful. Um, so, listeners, that was Jazz by Toni Morrison and Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. We've put a link to the complete book match list on our website. That list includes these titles and a few more that Nick selected, especially for the episode. Um, and you can check them all out right here at the Brooklyn Public Library. Thanks again, Nick. Thanks, Ajoa. And as long as we're recommending books on Borrowed, why not recommend another podcast?
4: This one comes to us from Shanette Chapman, who took part in one of BPL's community podcasting programs called Outpost Redux. In a series of workshops held at two different family shelters in Brooklyn, several patrons recorded and produced the first episode of their podcast ideas.
5: Jeanette was one of the participants and her experience led her to create a podcast about what it's like to be the mother of a child with special needs.
2: My name is Jeanette. I am a parent of an eight-year-old autistic child and my podcast and every topic will be about special needs and the people of color community. I really want to understand and navigate and help others to figure out why we are being left out of the conversation when it comes to our children and their needs. When I introduced myself, I introduced myself as a mom first.
4: We sat down with Jeanette after she'd finished two rounds of the Outpost Redux workshops to ask her about how she felt starting a podcast.
2: Being a parent is hard. Being a young parent, I became a mom at 17. Um, it's hard. And I love to talk about my struggles or the things I've overcome being a mom, being a parent. And I was homeless. I had my, at the time, eight-year-old child with me, my two-year-old son with me, and life didn't completely suck because I had a roof over my head. I had money in my pocket, but I wasn't where I wanted to be. And being able to come into the library that the shelter provided and just speak on things that I've been holding in for so, so many years, it was a release. It was It was great besides the crying, you know,
4: every week, but it made me a stronger person and I think a really strong mother. You can listen to the first two episodes of Shanette's podcast on Outpost Redux. It's on iTunes and it's also on our website, bklynlibrary.org slash podcasts slash community dash content.
5: And I just want to say that Outpost Redux and Shine On Me, the program that Donald Peebles started, came out of our incubator program. It's a pretty amazing part of our library that gives funding to staff, allowing them to build programs and services that are responsive to community needs.
4: And you can find out more about BPL's incubator program on our website. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me, Krissa Corbett Kavoris, and Ajua Aduse. You can find a transcript of this episode at our website, as well as a link to the book match list from Nick and social service resources here at the library.
5: There are a bunch of people who share their expertise whose voices didn't make it into this episode. The staff at Breaking Ground, Casey Burke, Dinah Anderson, and Aliyah Coleman, as well as Sarah Johnson at Hunter College, who shared her insight about the history of librarianship and social work.
4: Borrowed is produced and written by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzy Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. Our music composer is Billy Libby. Borrowed will be back in two weeks. For now, get home safe, everybody.
5: Hey BARD listeners, if you live in New York City and love the public library, we need your help. This past fall, our public libraries sustained deep mid-year cuts that forced an end of seven-day service and reduction of our materials and programs. We're now facing more budget cuts for the coming fiscal year. Libraries across the city stand to lose $58.3 million in funding. If these cuts are not reversed, we may have to reduce materials and programming yet again including further reductions to our days of service. As many as half of all New York City libraries would be open only five days a week. The good news is you can help. Send a letter to city leaders telling them that you support the library. It's easy, it only takes 30 seconds, and you can do it now. If you live in Brooklyn, go to bklynlibrary.org standup, all one word, to fill out the form. If you live in any of the other boroughs, you can send a letter on behalf of Queen's Public Library or New York Public Library. Learn how at investinlibraries.org. Thank you so much for your support.